When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And I'm Ian Dunst. I'm a columnist with the Eye and the author of How to Be a Liberal. Ian, this time we are talking about the word woke. God Why are we talking about woke? Because we are sadomasochists. <laughs> we, we really like to punish ourselves physically and mentally. You can't escape it. I mean, while we were doing the research for this programme... I mean, I, I couldn't, I lost count of how many newspaper headlines, typically in the right-wing press, but not exclusively in the right-wing press, would be talking about the word woke. There was a speech by the Tory party chairman, Oliver Dowden, in Washington, which was sort of framed, it was sold and delivered as this attack on woke. It has become this kind of catch-all sort of encapsulation of sort of liberalism, progressive ideas, left-wing ideas, racial justice, gender justice, typically from a conservative viewpoint. And you sort of end up in the end thinking, well, well, this word just simply has no meaning to it whatsoever. It's being used as a catch-all attack and nothing. And actually, this is, I, I mean, to me, the next hour is basically about us trying to excavate it, check it out and see whether there is any meaning to it, let alone whether any of that happens to be true or false. Yeah, because we've got some words which had very specific meanings at the beginning that we talk about in the series, like neoliberalism, McCarthyism, and then mm. they become more contested or more vague over time. Whereas this is one which had a very specific meaning. And then that meaning sort of got turned on its head or, or not, not that it means the opposite, but that it, it, it starts as a positive becomes a negative. And I think that's a really, a really interesting extreme version of, of hijacking. Mm -hmm. So I suppose more than a lot of the episodes, the etymology becomes really important. So we will start with the OED definition, mm. which is, of course, is relatively new. African-American slang dating back to 1891, awake, not or no longer asleep. Oh, dear. In figurative sense, don't worry, that's not it. <laughs> There's more. Originally well-informed, up-to-date, now chiefly alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice, frequently in stay woke, often used as an exhortation. In later use, perhaps popularised through its association with African-American civil rights activism in recent years, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement, and by the lyrics of the 2008 song Master Teacher by American singer-songwriter Erica Badu, in which the words, I stay woke, serve as a refrain. Moving on to citations, the first one that the OED gives is W.M. Kelly in the New York Times magazine in 1962, If You're Woke, You Dig It. Mm -hmm. 1972, in a something called Garvey Lives. I've been sleeping all my life, and now that Mr. Garvey done woke me up, I'm going to stay woke. And then one from 2009, they used the RICO laws to imprison Matulu Shakur, hashtag stay woke. So that would be before Black Lives Matter, but post that Erica Badu song. Mm -hmm. Ian, one thing that really strikes me there is it doesn't mention the negative meaning that has overtaken the positive one. This, this is this is a sort of one that that actually progressives would would totally agree with, right? Like, as in, it, it's that's the that's what it's meant to mean. Yeah, I don't really. I mean, I yes, I, I think that's completely right. I mean, it's almost like a glimmer. It's really quite hard to even remember. And I lived through that period, the period where it was used positively and embraced by people, right? I mean, I, I feel like that was a very, very short period of time. I do remember it a bit. Hmm. But this is a word that's had far more time being used in the pejorative sense than it has in the affirmative sense, I think. And so yeah. from that, it's, it, it feels like an odd artifact, that definition, because it wouldn't really give you much guidance as to the current usage. Because there's something particularly unpleasant, I think, about this hijacking.
I'm going to talk about political correctness later because, uh, to me, this is basically political correctness rebranded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But political correctness, in its original meaning, was negative. It was ironic. It was the left using it against other people on the left or against themselves going, oh, that's not very politically Mm -hmm, correct. mm -hmm. But kind of being politically correct was never meant to be a positive thing. It was never intended to be positive. Woke was positive and specifically used by black Americans. And so turning that and that particular grammar, that particular kind of demotic grammar into an insult contains within it, for me, a racist undercurrent, whether or not that is always intentional. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I've read a lot of conservative assault on woke in prep for this, and it's quite hard to deny that there does seem to be a racist undercurrent to a lot of it. One of the things that also struck me, though, was how useful a word it is for the social media era, right? Like, it's very short one of the key things so Mm. for twitter to be able to summarize a whole bunch of stuff whether you're attacking it or supporting it in four letters was very very helpful it's very good it's it's not strange that we keep on using hashtags you know and even in the oed is using hashtags when it talks about it and i think the same goes in reverse when you're saying anti-woke you can summarize a bunch of sort of barely understood kind of culture war stuff and just put it into a bag so i think the shortness of the word is probably one of the chief reasons that it's had enough popularity for us to be talking about it now like me too yeah exactly yeah you know if you can sum up this sort of huge idea this huge argument in four or five letters then it's going to catch on but then it takes on a life of its own right like one of the things that we'll see today is that suddenly all sorts of people get chucked into the into the woke category because once the word is there and and is fixed and has a general assessment of enemies to it you can just start chucking the enemies in no matter how mutually contradictory they are yeah i mean that's the thing when you think about it historically woke seems to mean two things in one way it's basically every kind of progressive politics that isn't based on class and economics you know (laughs) so it's every kind of it's everything but the way it's used is it's like oh yeah but the bad version of that (laughs) but it's the same sort of thing so is was martin luther king woke were the abolitionists in the 19th century woke were the suffragettes woke yes but i think a lot of the anti-woke people would go oh no they were fine so maybe if you're like woke and dead then you're okay because it's in the past there's that thing isn't it the Mm -hmm. progress when it's happening now can get people really wound up progress in the past a lot of the time you go oh well no that's different Mm -hmm. they did it the right way even even sort of even racists seem to sort of want to try and appropriate martin luther king (laughs) oh they do they love they love doing that but i would say martin luther king was very woke yeah i would say he was pretty much on that side let me talk a little bit about the history of 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 the the phrase i mean you do get a use by marcus garvey marcus garvey this jamaican philosopher and social activist there's a collection of his ideas and thoughts put together by his wife amy jacks garvey after he dies called philosophy and opinions of marcus garvey there is a line there he says wake up ethiopia wake up africa let us work towards the one glorious end of a free, redeemed, and mighty nation. That's from 1923. Now, obviously, he's not the first guy to use the metaphor of waking up, no. right, for political ideas. But I think but it, it tends to be the thing that's pointed at most of all for, for, you know, that racial sort of use of that metaphor. Right. And quite shortly afterwards, 1938, there's a song by the black American singer-songwriter Leadbelly called The Scottsboro Boys, mm. which is about sort of a group of black teenagers who are accused of raping two white women. And the song ends, and he has this sort of quite extraordinary kind of spoken section at the end, where he then says, I advise everybody, be a little careful when they go along through there. Best stay woke, keep their eyes open. And I think already, even in that bit, in the context of that song, that's not just a literal watch out for the police or, you know, watch out for people who will accuse you of something, you know, unjust. It's also be alive to the kind of systemic racism that you're seeing. But the key moment, and it was mentioned in that OED definition, is this article in the New York Times, quite an extraordinary article in 1962, William Melvin Kelly's essay called If You're Woke, You Dig It. Now, here's the thing. He doesn't mention the word woke in the copy. It's only in the headline. And we're both journalists and we're aware, very, very aware of the fact yeah, that yeah. very often you're just not responsible for the headline. However, the essay kind of foreshadows lots of the things that, that are there in, in the debate, the sort of culture war debate around woke as we see it now. He's sort of sat on the subway and he sees a sign which is about keeping, keeping the sort of carriages clean. And it's in all these different languages, some of which are sort of there for a laugh. And one of them is in supposedly beatnik. 
And it says, it's kind of embarrassing even saying this, hey, cats, this is your swinging wheels, so dig it and keep it boss. And his thing is like, look, well, it's not beatnik at all, actually. This is black slang. And what you've ascribed to basically sort of white hippies and jazz and sort of cannabis guys was basically appropriated is essentially his argument. And what's fascinating about the articles, I mean, firstly, he says, you know, why, why are African-Americans so good at slang? It's partly because this is a group that needed a secret language. Basically, they needed a way of talking that the master wouldn't recognize. He says, if your master didn't know what you were talking about or planning, he could not punish you. Then he celebrates just the sort of ingenuity and vivaciousness of African-American slang, and especially the way that by the time that any white person's aware of any of it, it's already gone completely out of fashion in any kind of black community. He says, I asked someone what they felt about white people trying to use hip language. He said, man, they blew the gig just by being gray. Something which, again, would be said about us rather than by us. I think there you get a sense kind of almost of the story of what happens to the word woke. Because you get that sense of, here is a word, it comes up in the black community, it's used and sort of stripped of all context in white communities, first of all, maybe on a liberal front, and then on the conservative front, and then is weaponized against them. And the fascinating thing about it here is, I think, the use of, remember, it is a slang term, but part of the sort of mockery, I think, and the snideness of the conservative use of it now is to act like it's a form of illiteracy, rather than an ingenuity. That's what I mean by that racist undertow. Mm -hmm, Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think that's very interesting. Then in t- 2008, you get Erica Badu's master teacher, that song, and it explodes. But even sort of in the sort of early 2000 periods, it still has different, it has the political meaning. It's also used a lot for seeing if your partner's cheating on you, you know, be woke about, you know, potential infidelity. And a little bit as well for sort of working hard, for grinding away at work. But it really, really crystallizes 2014 when you get the shooting of Michael Brown by the police officer, Darren Wilson, and the riots and protests that break out in Ferguson, Missouri. And there you get Black Lives Matters activists using stay woke as a phrase. And then really at that point, you have a very crystal example of this being used in the current context, the current way. Now, in woke is kind of like a Russian doll containing concepts like identity politics and cancel culture and so on, which could be episodes in their own right. And where I want to start from, you may disagree with me here, but I see it as a rebranding of political correctness for the social media era. And so therefore, I think we do have to talk about political correctness. Mm -hmm. This is the definition of politically correct. A, appropriate to the prevailing political or social circumstances. Originally US, sometimes depreciative, conforming to a body of liberal or radical opinion, especially on social matters, usually characterized by the advocacy of approved causes or views, and often by the rejection of language behavior, etc., considered discriminatory or offensive. It's another thing that starts like the word centrism with 1930s Marxism. Huh. You have John Strachey. We are sometimes little apt to pretend to wish to suggest that such writers are necessarily better writers, this means Marxist, because they are more politically correct than our fellow travelers. That is what politically correct meant, i.e. political correctness means that there is a correct line. So that is associated with Marxism. It really sort of takes off with with Maoism among the new left. This idea that there are a correct set of opinions and that you will be punished if you deviate. But by correct, they mean like it's literally in Mao's Little Red Book. Mm -hmm. It's literally in the teachings of, you know, of Lenin or Stalin Mm -hmm. or whatever. There are rules. And of course, political correctness... Later on, there isn't any set text. It's a sort of social consensus, but there's no set text like that. And there's actually a theory that that neoconservatives, most of whom were former communists, were deliberately referencing the old communist meaning of political correctness to make all progressive ideas sound rigid and authoritarian, to really emphasize the kind of the sinister aspect of correctness mm-hmm. and the idea that you were punished for deviation. Will Hutton in 1991 wrote, Political correctness is one of the brilliant tools that the American right developed in the mid-1980s as part of its demolition of American liberalism. What the sharpest thinkers on the American right saw quickly was that by declaring war on the cultural manifestations of liberalism, by levelling the charge of political correctness against its exponents, they could discredit the whole political project. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that there is a meaningful difference in its negative application between woke and PC? 
to me, yeah, th- there are some distinctions. I can certainly see the overlap. But the etymology here is really interesting because in the 70s and the 80s, politically correct was this ironic joke. So if on the way back from like a protest march, you would got a burger at McDonald's, you know, your mate would go, that's not very politically correct, com- comrade, mm-hmm. you know. So that's how it exists as an adjective. But by the end of the 80s, the right hijacked the phrase as an insult. And that's when it commonly becomes a noun as well, political correctness. And I think the same thing happened with woke is that people on the left, and you see this coming from the slang, would describe themselves as woke. But their opponents turn that into an ideology. So it becomes wokeness, wokeism, wokery. I mean, awful mm-hmm. words. The war on woke. You know, that makes it sound more dangerous. So it's not a thing. It's not a state of being. Because what it means is awareness, right? So you couldn't have a war on awareness or I oppose awarenessism. you know, But wokeness, like political correctness, sounds like this huge monolithic force which threatens to overwhelm the culture. And I think that's the way that that word becomes a noun and a really kind of quite intimidating noun, Mm -hmm. I think is crucial. I wonder whether you couldn't say it strongly implies and may even be defined by the awareness of structural oppression in a society. And that actually what you often see from the right in the broadest sense is a denial of structural oppression, whether it's by class or race or gender or anything else. It's the sort of demand that you just take the world as it is. And in fact, a lot of the time when you read the stuff, anti-woke literature, I call it literature with a heavy fucking heart, you do get that sense from it of just this like, why can't you just act like everything's simple? <laughs> you know, like why, why do you keep on alluding to this? idea that language may have implications. <laughs> but it's a sort of fear of, or demonization of ideology. You know, it's interesting, I think, in the trans debate, there's become much more talk of a trans ideology, mm. because then that sounds a bit more sinister. Yeah, yeah. And it's a denial that you have any ideology yourself, that the status quo has any ideology, that white supremacy, you know, is an ideology. That's just the way things are. Mm-hmm. But the progressive sort of critique of that that's an ideology that's you know that's critical race theory that's theory it's ideology <laughs> you know and these are not those are things that marxists get very marxists are like we, we love these words what <laughs> theory theory We're ideology theory. it's wonderful um but but of course a lot of people don't like that at all it does sound quite sinister it sounds like a conspiracy mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. to be fair to them that's not a big feature of these books that i'm reading but i think the idea is quite interesting so you can obviously have that very specific sort of cultural Marxism conspiracy theory, uh, as you've just described. And then I think there's there's almost a level below that, which still kind of dabbles kind of waist high in conspiracy theory, which is that kind of classic Daily Mail, you know, woke has taken over the BBC, you know, lefty snowflakes are in charge of culture. And that general kind of right wing paranoia of, well, we keep on winning on the governing front. We keep on being able to take over government. We keep on losing on the cultural front. And that must be because these, you know, metropolitan liberals are always in charge of TV. They're in charge of theatre. They're in charge of the museums. And incidentally, that kind of paranoia is not restricted to this country. I mean, you, you see the same kind of thing in Hungary. You see in most places that you get a nativist government come in, one of the key attacks is a cultural attack. And in that, absolutely certainly, there is a kind of Ribena level conspiracy theory, right? Like it does, it lacks the specificity, but it has that general thing of people are conspiring in order to undermine our essential virtue. Let's give me a little long game sort of history on some of the things that they routinely complain about the right. So in 1951, when he was 25, the arch conservative William F. Buckley Jr. Mm. published a polemic called God and Man at Yale. And he was a recent Yale graduate, which accused left wing professors at the university of breeding atheistic socialists. And he makes an interesting prediction. He says, I believe that if and when the menace of communism is gone, other vital battles at present subordinated will emerge to the foreground and the winner must have help from the classroom. And this is pretty much what happened. The backlash against political correctness starts in the dying days of the Cold War. In 1987, with a book by the philosopher Alan Bloom called The Closing of the American Mind. It's another one of these American, long American subtitles. Mm. Our higher education has failed democracy and impoverished the souls of today's students. (laughs) Now, Bloom doesn't actually mention political correctness at all. But his argument is that relativism and multiculturalism and, of course, rock music have contributed to a dumbing down of American students. 
That same year, the right-wing think tank, the Free Congress Foundation, claims the politics that carry us into the 21st century will be based not on economics, but on culture. And the phrase culture wars doesn't really exist at this point, at Mm -hmm. least in the modern sense either. But this is what's happening. Camille Paglia calls this book the first shot in the culture wars. Oh, wow. Retrospectively, she calls it that. Sells half a million copies. It's number one bestseller for six months. Bastard. And it is a heavy book. (laughs) Like, it is not a kind of zippy, it's not Piers Morgan's, Mm -hmm. you know, book about political greatness, whatever. It's a kind of like, it's a heavy, earnest tome about higher education. Did you read the book? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Is it any good? I mean, in its own terms. I I mean, it's cranky. (laughs) It's cranky. But it's serious. I think that's what's, it's very serious. And it's, and it's not, it's not nutty. Mm -hmm. It's grumpy. So it inspires lots of other books about campus politics, some of which do use the new phrase. Books like Tenured Radicals by Roger Kimball and Illiberal Education by Dinesh D'Souza. Again, considering that Dinesh D'Souza is now a lunatic, the book itself, not anywhere near as wild as you would think. They, they were trying to sound quite sensible at that point. Like, we're the sensible people. Mm-hmm. And look at these crazy students and, uh, you know, professors filling our heads with nonsense. Particularly, it was... They either blame French or they blame the Germans. <laughs> it's either it's either Nietzsche's fault or the Frankfurt School or or Derrida huh. or Foucault. Like uh, Europeans, trouble. Fair enough to blame Foucault. Um, it's, it's always fair enough to blame, blame Foucault. Right, it doesn't really enough. matter what's happening. We'll give them that. <laughs> and so very quickly, 1991, you get articles in all major US publications, then all major UK ones, where PC basically replaces the loony left. Uh huh. Yeah. Which was what this was called in, in the 1980s, and um, PC is pinned on leftists who, who it is alleged, lost the battle for politics and economics and retrenched in culture as a kind of consolation prize. By May 1991, President Bush is saying the notion of political correctness has ignited controversy across the land. And although the movement arises from the laudable desire to sweep away the debris of racism and sexism and hatred, it replaces old prejudice with new ones. It declares certain topics off-limits, certain expression off-limits, even certain gestures off-limits. And this, you know, very, very quickly, you've got political correctness established. Now, what he's saying there is, in a sense, what people say about wokeness. So I want to set up the, the components of early 90s PC reading all these books and articles seem to be an obsession with policing language, restrictions on free speech, cultural relativism, identity politics, diversity, and revisionist history. Mm -hmm. The New York Times in 1990 says politically correct has become a sarcastic jibe used by those conservatives and classical liberals alike. Good old classical liberals. (laughs) To describe what they see as a growing intolerance, a closing of debate, a pressure to conform to a radical program, or risk being accused of a commonly reiterated trio of thought crimes, sexism, racism, and homophobia. Hmm. Sarah Dunant edited a very good 1994 anthology of essays called The War of the Words, the political correctness debate. And she says, PC is a dirty word in 90s Britain. To call someone PC is less a description than an insult, carrying with it accusations of everything from Stalinism slash McCarthyism to, even worse, having no sense of (laughs) humour. She goes on, at a more apocalyptic level, political correctness is hailed as a movement which, if allowed to run unchecked, will curtail free speech, deny common sense, threaten the foundations of family life, and rewrite our literary and national histories until all notions of Western values are denied. Now... The reason why I don't think that this is just a sort of a preamble and actually talking about political Mm -hmm. correctness is talking about woke, because so many of these things are the same. You could just plug into some of those sentences I've quoted the word woke. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Two things really struck me. One is that some of the things that that are examples of, of sort of perhaps politically correct overreaction seem quite bizarre now. Like two examples in the New York Times in 1991. At Harvard, two students were denounced for hanging a Confederate flag out of a dormitory window. (laughs) And you're like, okay, maybe they should have been. At the University of Connecticut, a student was denounced by the homosexual community and ordered by school officials to move off campus. This is terrible. What what, what did she do? After she posted a sign in her dormitory saying, homos should be shot. (laughs) And it's quite extraordinary <laughs> that this was meant to be the kind of this is the thought police mm-hmm. just like oh you can't say anyone should be shot <laughs> these days and the other thing that 
is is really striking why I think it's so important to, to, to sort of be aware of this debate, which was happening almost exactly 30 years ago, is if we're looking at slippery slope arguments and sort of incipient totalitarianism, it's like, well, you'd have to go, well, did that happen? Mm-hmm. This was 30 years ago, and it was meant to be. It's the new Stalinists, Maoists, McCarthyists, thought police, freedom of speech is dying. Like, it was, there was an enormous amount of alarmist rhetoric. Now, this didn't happen. I guess what, what concerns me is that we, we always tell ourselves instinctively, well, this will never happen in, until it does. And there are changes from where we are now to where we were then. I mean, the most obvious one, so it's almost so obvious as banal, is social media. Mm-hmm. And that that is producing types of human behavior that feel quite new. I mean, they may not be. It may turn out that actually it's just a bunch of sort of bubble and strife, you know, virtue. but it feels very new and it feels like a different set of incentives and of uh, psychological triggers are being developed there. And another, I would say, is updates in psychology and in particular the the way that we talk about trauma and sort of mental health right right that play in very very strongly to the current debates on this that that i can't remember but it could have been just because i was too young i can't remember figuring prominently during the pc debate it it does a bit they do talk about sort of speech as in violence and making people unsafe Mm -hmm. but it isn't the main it isn't the main thrust Mm -hmm. the tropes because i know that you have been reading for your sins sort of anti-woke books. Uh-huh. So I did my bit. Um, being, did you? Being a 90s kid. No, by That's reading fine. the anti-PC stuff, right? Oh, okay. And so... I don't think that we took the same pain on that. <laughs> just, just to be clear, I mean, so far the books that you've described do not sound anywhere near as bad as the shit that I've trawled through over the last few weeks. But before you tell me about your book learnings, I would like to just point out three kind of very common tropes. Mm-hmm. One is alarmism. So PC people are Stalinists, Maoists, Nazis, witch hunters, and so on, who will destroy first liberal education and then society at large. <laughs> In that order. Yeah. Great. It's that just... is the right order, to be fair. You'd want to structure it that way. Then there's the man bites dog phenomenon. So we expect cultural conservatives to be didactic and censorious. Mm. It's almost not news when some conservatives on a school board in Texas decide that they want to ban, like, maths books for being too woke. Mm -hmm. You sort of just go, oh, yeah, well, they would do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But when the left does it, because the left is meant to cherish freedom of thought and expression, it's always seen to be worse, Mm -hmm. even if, in in, in practical terms, it's not worse. It's seen to be worse. Hence phrases like McCarthyism of the left and liberal fascism. And as Stuart Hall puts it, you know, a man of the left, but quite sceptical about PC, he said, our enemies are bad enough, God save us from our friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the problem that PC had, and I think Woke has, is it's attacked not just from the right, but from people on the left who were worried about it. Mm -hmm. And so basically, there's only like one quarter of the quadrant (laughs) is really sort of defending it. And then the third is anecdotes rather than data. Mm -hmm. So they'll take a striking example of some extreme rhetoric or behavior and present it as the new normal or or the shape of things to come. And often it turns out that these stories just don't hold up. Well, there's not always going to be slightly that way with cultural change. I don't know. I mean, no, you have to ultimately have evidence, but there is a sense of when you can feel societal mores shifting. It's often quite hard to put your finger on you know, on when that point is reached, I suppose. But it's certainly true reading the woke stuff that exactly the same thing applies. What you constantly see is these allusions back to tweets. And you're like, oh, but dude, it's it's a tweet. Like, I read more crap on Twitter every day that is horrifyingly ignorant and, and just hysterical. Than I, you know, than I would anywhere else. I mean, of course, it's Twitter, right? Yeah, because so you can't use that. Yeah, like. you could go like a tweet from some random person. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, very often it is just some guy that wrote to them on Twitter, and they told me this, and he's sort of being like, "And you've just put this in your book? <laughs> like, are you out of your mind?" But they, but the thing is, because of course, some of those things will be very, very abusive. So of course, it's very feel like you, you, you know, right to say you have received threats. Oh, you sure. have received horrible abuse. So it's true, but then you just go, well, who are these people? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, exactly where is this coming from? And, and on Twitter, it, it all gets very, very distorted. And, and just, you know, the worst stuff will stick in your head. And you feel like, and so much of it, therefore, is a feeling. So when we talk about a chilling effect, self-censorship, right? Now, these things exist. But 
they're quite hard to pin down. But it is anecdotal, isn't it? I mean, the thing is, you know, I have lots of friends in academia who are very progressive, liberal people, and they will tell you, no, I mean, I feel quite restrained in the things I would say and the kind of dogmas I would challenge. And, you know, I mean, it is certainly that within academia, you hear about it a lot. But again, what am I doing? I'm just doing the same thing that you're doing in the book of, yeah, I hear about it a lot. And that's generally what I hear is stuff that broadly substantiates some of the concerns around around how much value is placed on free speech. What we can conclude from that, whether that has anything to do with woke, is another matter entirely. Which probably leads me to say, do you want me to tell you about all the disastrous fucking books I've read for this podcast? I do. I do. Are they weighty books about <laughs> Nietzsche and Foucault? No, no, they are not. No. There was, one of them was uh, Wake Up by Piers Morgan, which is... One um, of our great thinkers. One of our, the great thinkers of our, our time, which is actually, and I don't say this as a ho-ho-ho, it's actually one of the worst books I have ever read. And I don't mean that for the opinions. I just mean I, the person I blame is, is the editor, really. You're just like, well, what is? what have you done? Like, you know, there's sort of an opening 20 pages of the classic anti-woke stuff. Yeah, list and of examples and yeah, yeah. it's you, all going you know, horribly wrong. Everyone wants you to be a vegan now. And if you don't, they'll fucking shoot you. Exactly. Um, and then it's just his diaries from lockdown. So even in terms of like, there is no structure to the argument. In fact, there is no argument to it at all. It, it's shockingly, shockingly bad. And I was amazed that it was published. I then read, Jesus, God, man, Welcome to the Woke Trials, How Identity Killed Progressive Politics by Julie Birchill. Um, This is a book that was going to be published by Hachette, uh, then was not because of comments she made about Islam, thereby proving, I suppose, for her, the points that she makes in the book. She then went to another publisher who it turned out was uh, very racist, and she then left them, so she cancelled her publisher and had it published through a third. It is shockingly, shockingly bad. She is much smarter than Piers Morgan, but much, actually weirdly, much less likable. Because with Piers Morgan, you do get these glimmers of moments where he's almost starting to get that he might himself be part of the problem of how we talk and demonize others. But with Judy mm-hmm. Bertram, you get none of that. And it's actually quite a hateful book. And the third book I read was and it echoes of, of what you've been talking about, which will help your case, actually, from the 90s, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a, gen- a Generation for Failure. It's another fantastically long American book title yeah. for you there by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. I quite like those writers. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Actually, yeah, on that, on that, you know, on that front, because Greg Lukianoff has a history of, you know, free speech, on campus issues, which goes back a long way, which sort of, I think, goes back. His organisation, FIRE, sort of goes back to the original political correctness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I do think that there is some principle at work there. I wouldn't agree with him on everything. But I do think that, that there is a... With both of them, I think there is a genuine concern for, I think, the speech issue in particular. Um, look, they are genuine. I mean, of, of these three books, you know, mm-hmm. there is only one that I would recommend. And it won't surprise you to learn that it's theirs. But ultimately, when you strip it down, many of the same points are there. Let me sort of guide you through some of the sort of main themes that I find. But it is our job to just try and excavate, I think, some of the main themes of this kind of way of talking and see whether there is anything of meaning in it. And at first, it's quite hard. I mean, Birch, look, this is a li- this is not a complete list of the, of the groups and people that Julie Birchill calls woke. Islam, all of it, Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, trans activists, Remainers, the EU, the police, Black Lives Matter, Prince Charles, environment, Prince Charles, environmentalists, Marks and Spencers, the Sunday Times style guide and Countdown. Okay, so by the end of it, you just think, well, do you, what is, what is, is it just the category of stuff you don't like? Because that's, that's ultimately how it is. Wouldn't it be useful if both the police and Black Lives Matter were woke? Exactly. That would have solved a lot of issues it's if like they agreed with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel <laughs> that a lot of people facing trial for something during a demo would be yeah, like, yeah. Well, I'd, be quite, I'd be kind of okay with that. What I ultimately got from both her and Morgan was this really acute sense of generational anxiety, of kind of hatred of the young. And I know that there's a bit of us all that's like anything that's younger than me or that came after me must be wrong by virtue of of that quality. 
But they do seem to take it to this extreme. And you see it, it's just drenched in it all the way through. So, I mean, Birchall says, The old saying, youth is wasted on the young, has never been so true as it is of the woke. As well as being averse to rigorous thinking, they are the first generation to want less of everything, less sex, less booze, less travel, and definitely less laughs. This appears to be the first generation bred without a sense of humour. Morgan is constantly talking about parents that are, this is a quote, pandering to their kids like never before, showering them with love and affection from dawn till dusk, giving them more money, holidays and general comfort blankets than any previous generation could have dreamed of. Everybody knows, of course, that, 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 that this generation is the most, um, has had the easiest ride of all. <laughs> they can buy any houses that they like. They don't have to worry about uh, anything at all, really. The, the environment, nothing. It's just, uh, I mean, I, 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 I envy and resent them. Right. But also this idea that like, oh, those terrible parents. Showering their kids in love. <laughs> like, you know, how could you think that this would raise well, you know, well-meaning adults? It's very, very odd. Yes, but it's it's funny because once you create this this this, this stereotype, it doesn't matter whether it's accurate or not. It seems it, it becomes very persuasive, doesn't it? It seems very real. It's just like, oh, they're all sort of that, you know, they're pampered and they're coddled, mm -hmm. and certain things play into that. You know, I would say trigger warnings. I thought was a really interesting example because when I first read about trigger warnings, and it was quite an alarmist article, but I didn't really realise that at the time. I wasn't as good at reading the signs, mm -hmm. um, and I was like, well, this sounds terrible. What people, you know, they can't handle, you know, the Great Gatsby. <laughs> you know, this seems a bit pathetic. And then it turned out they were like. That hardly any universities in America, there's, there's a handful of universities that, that had trigger warnings. The, the way that they were being used was people might have real trauma. So, for example, if you are showing a film which features a rape scene, it seems like the decent thing to do to flag up in case any of your students have mm -hmm. experienced something like that, that this is what they're going to be seeing and give them the option We've done this on TV for decades. Right. To stay. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's what it is in practice. You know, in it, and what was happening was that a couple of kind of like rather daft sort of well-meaning people going over the top had put together a long list, which included like Great Gatsby, you know, suicide or whatever, you mm -hmm. know. And this was being held up as if this was going to be the new norm across American universities. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't. And people don't really talk about trigger warnings. It, it, it's more used in, like, podcasts, you know. Yeah, right-wing tri podcasts. Right -wing, triggered, untriggered, <laughs> you know. Trigger, no warning. <laughs> but the actual thing... Let's give you a few of the names that we toyed with <laughs> when we came up with origin that, stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying this edition of Origin Story. We'd love making it. But hacking our way through the underworld of politics and history takes a lot of work if you want to do it properly. You can help us keep going and suggest topics we should tackle in the next series of the podcast by supporting Origin Story on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Back Origin Story for as little as £5 a month and you'll be helping Dorian and me to dig even deeper into our research, discover more strange and illuminating moments from the hidden history of politics and culture and generally drive ourselves to distraction on your behalf. You'll also get special benefits, including Zooms with me and Dorian, an extra episode every month where we answer your questions, an exclusive origin story mugs and t-shirts featuring inspiring and or possibly terrifying quotes from our research. Search Patreon Origin Story Podcast to find out how you can support us. Or just click the link in the show notes. With your help, we can ultimately explain everything. I think there's a sort of innately conservative element to this attack as well. It's not just about fear of aging, fear of getting old. And it's the implicit in it is this idea that everything's fine now. People aren't getting up. Young people aren't getting upset because of real reasons. They're getting upset because they're so sensitive. Right? Mm. Morgan says it explicitly all the time. Says the lack of anything to really worry about has led to a whole cosseted generation to create what endless firestorms. Right. And Has he not seen, like, the people worried about real firestorms? No, yeah, or, or the news, <laughs> the like, news. Which, which he often sits there on TV while it plays out. No, apparently not. And, so, and he says this over and over. They, they have so little to legitimately whine about given how much safer, healthier, and more prosperous the world is now. Well, the funny thing, and this is why in the end I came out of it liking Morgan much more than I did Birchall, is 
there's this. So, for instance, when you get the last bout of sort of protest in 2020, I mean, Morgan sees the I Can't Breathe video and he writes, you know, what I saw made me feel physically sick. We've seen it firsthand, the terrifying reality of what it really means to be black in America right now. This is a wake up moment. He actually uses those words, I think, without realizing what he's just done. This is a wake up moment for all of us. Things have to change. I think what's extraordinary there is he's almost there. You know, he's almost to the point of like, oh, shit, maybe everything isn't that great. You know, maybe people do have things to be really upset about and to feel unsafe about, by the way. But he just can't quite make the link. They talk a lot about institutional capture, this idea that, you know, universities, you know, no longer have a broad range of thinkers. Everyone's too scared of saying what they they really want. But predominantly, you get this sense of um, kind of cultural overload. Like they can't stand the velocity of, of the cultural change. Morgan says, in fact, this is the opening of his book. I don't know when it first hit me that the world had gone nuts. It might have been when an American white woman self-identified as black on national television, despite both her parents being white. That was nuts. Maybe it was when there were strident calls from radical feminists for James Bond to be female. That was nuts. Or, (laughs) you don't even know it, because you will not guess the last item on the list. Or was it when Google removed the egg from its salad emoji to make it more inclusive to vegans? That was nuts. I love that as an inspiring moment to write a book. You know, well, with this, I cannot put. <laughs> I love, I love the way that he can just sort of turn from like seeing a a, a man be choked to death by the police to like an animated salad. Be <laughs> <laughs> really like, I don't know which is worse. <laughs> so you really get that all the way through. Just that the world is changing fast. The the young are sort of just terribly misguided at best and very pampered. And that's where I think the emotional part of this comes from. Well, could I suggest something here? Because I think it's quite easy, it's childishly simple, to um, make fun of a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that's why, that's why we are here. <laughs> that's why, that was the point of the episode. No, but, but I do wonder whether, you know, that that is something that, that one should sort of take seriously. The sense of everything moving so fast mm-hmm. And in a sense, to replace the sort of the hard work of persuasion with regulation and institutional capture and so on. And I do think that if you run too far ahead of the general public, then that can be a problem. And there's a quote I found from from Martin Amis from the 90s. Said, viewed at its grandest, PC is an attempt to accelerate evolution. Freedom from racial prejudice is what we hope for down the line. Impatient with this hope, this process, PC seeks to get the thing done right now in a generation. To achieve this, it will need a busy executive wing and much invigilation. What it will actually entrain is another ton of false consciousness to add to the megatons of false consciousness already aboard, and then a backlash. Now, my name is not probably the most sympathetic either to PC mm. or to work, but nor is he just a you know a simple yeah, yeah. simple reactionary. And I do find sometimes that there is that that the impatience is sometimes the problem. It's where it's just like we need this thing to change, and we need to change now, and just to, to, to just sort of like just shut up, mm-hmm. you know. And get on board. And this is where a lot of time the kind of real friction comes out. Now, I do not think that that is the dominant tone of progressive politics now. I don't think that. But I think the bits that get on people's nerves and the bits that are fodder for people like Morgan and Birchall in their books are those cases where it's sort of just like, well, we've had a meeting. (laughs) And you're a racist now. (laughs) And we've decided this now. But it means that there's not a sort of set thing and it's not always like, it, you know, that this is the right thing and this is, this is mm-hmm. the wrong thing. These things do evolve. The language can sometimes evolve. And a lot of times people are working stuff out, which I think is really, really healthy. But what it does mean is that I think that while in the broad strokes you, don't, you shouldn't sacrifice any of your sort of values and demands – is that where I think the clashes often come is on these very, very specific examples, you know, which can seem quite absurd. Arguments about particular words, about particular incidents, where one feels this sort of... And then the average person therefore feels like that they have transgressed a rule that they didn't know existed, that they didn't really understand. And I'm not talking here about people who are are trying to just basically sort of launder their bigotries... But I think that fear where, where sort of quite normal, well-meaning people 
you feel bewildered, which then leads to resentment. But is it about speed or is it about manner? You know, because I mean, if we had these arguments, you know, in the, in the 80s about gay rights, it would have been a massive break on one of the sort of quickest most sort of moments of social justice that we've seen in our lifetime, right? Mm. Like the the thing that's constantly commented on, the sort of thing that sort of gives hand, sort of gives hope to, to progressives everywhere is look at how fast you can secure social justice in some instances yeah. when you do it right. So to me, it doesn't seem to be about speed. It's about how do you approach people? Like, do you actually go out to try and keep people with you or do you try to penalize them? You know, the, the whole thing of you've broken the rules, the language rules, seems to me like the absolute worst way of, of trying to bring people with you. The way to do it is to go, does this seem fair to you? Do you want to live in a fair society? And most people do think that they want to live in a yeah. fair society. I'm pretty open to these arguments as long as you don't try and turn them into the enemy, as long as you're essentially considering them a potential ally. But what it requires, I think, is extremely good judgment, yeah. often under pressure, which is not always there to be found. It's, <laughs> it's not. And, and a lot of it does end up dependent on institutions, right? So, you know, there's a phrase, you know, corporate wokeness. It's talking about kind of the way that sort of, um, you know, businesses and institutions and, and are trying to do it in quite a performative way. And it might, again, be quite well-meaning. But you get things like, I, I forget the, the gallery, but an art gallery cancelled an exhibition of the uh, painter Philip Guston. Mm-hmm. who would paint kind of these absurd portraits of, like, Ku Klux Klan with an anti-racist intent. And there was a... There, they, and they basically sort of panicked just after Black Lives Matter. Was, there, was a, there were quite a few panics in the summer of 2020. And this, this, uh, this big exhibition was cancelled. And the artist's family were really upset. Loads of art critics were upset. And, and the, the, the gallery never really backed it up. Mm-hmm. They just kind of felt they couldn't articulate why they'd done that. Yeah. They were just like, oh, people could misread this. Is this the right time? You know, there are people that get, sometimes the people get dropped by a newspaper. Or whatever, the, the, the food writer, Alison Roman, got dropped by a, a newspaper when she was accused, I think, unfairly of racism and dropped, had a TV show dropped. She's now made a comeback. It's fine. And then, no, and basically, nobody considers her a racist. It's mm-hmm. not like one of those comebacks like Louis C.K. where you're like, really? Like, no one seems angry that she's now managed to get her career back on track. Mm-hmm. And then you look back and you just go, well, why, why was she treated so harshly? And again, it was about optics. And I think, I suppose that's where we, that relates to sort of, we're talking about, about the, the tempo and the manner, is that in these extremely intense moments, sometimes employers or art institutions or educational institutions they don't think through everything. And that seems to me to be... And they have react. But that's the crucial difference then, I think. When, the really, really key one when we talk about the gap between PC and woke is social media. Because when we look at pressure, especially in short periods of time, that's where social media really comes to bear. So for brands, for companies, for academic institutions, for publishers, they really are quite likely to buckle because on the day that you're getting hundreds of thousands of messages on, yeah, yeah. on Twitter... It will feel a completely all-encompassing sort of tempest, really, of, of outrage in a way that I don't think was possible in sort of pre-internet days, or at least there was a slower release of that kind of objection. And that pro- probably does trigger more sort of, I shouldn't have used the word trigger, probably does create more scenarios in which people think they cancel someone, you know, from a speaking engagement, or from a book contract that then adds fuel to the fire of, of there's this culture. And in fact, it's worth me saying then that, that there are you do find in these books some specificity about their problems with sort of social justice movements, particularly, I think, on on cancel culture, as they call it, and also very particularly on something that is relatively new, although it's still around certainly in the 90s, on racial justice, which is the, the, the requirement not just that non-white people are legally equal, but that white people interrogate whether they have racial bias that they may or may not be aware of. Now that, to me, I mean, you know, you could, you could, there are obviously some examples of that where it's done very unhelpfully when we talk about velocity of change, of essentially, you know, having social justice movements that, are, that seem to be entirely designed to basically shout at white people and tell them they're dreadful. And you just think, well, just, you know, as a method, this is not a very good campaigning strategy. But obviously, it is perfectly possible to think of yourself as someone who is non-racist and still have lots of racial bias in you. And I think it's probably overwhelmingly true that most people do have that. 
And this is, I mean, this goes down like an absolute pile of sick with, with all of the writers. I mean, Birchall says, this, this is some striking stuff here. Because of my background, I never had to make an effort not to be racist. I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> Believe me, that's the best sentence as well. It gets worse from here. I hadn't really thought about it enough to worry about it. That would be for people with time on their hands. People who went to, quote, uni. I still believe <laughs> I'm too busy to be racist is an incredible <laughs> argument. I still believe that the natural and desirable state is to be not racist rather than anti-racist. What they're being asked to do is interrogate themselves and any bias they might have. Their response to that is not just, I am not a racist, I am not a white beater. It's also to create a kind of blocked view of humanity, where by virtue of being of that identity and being criticized, it sort of reveals to you that they are engaged in identity politics. They think that they're not, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, literally yeah. in the subtitle of her book that she's attacking identity politics. Yeah. And yet clearly when the questions are asked of groups which she is a member of, she suddenly gets incredibly defensive. So evidently her association with that membership is very, very strong indeed. And that gives you an indication of why when you hear the anti-woke stuff, it's typically not, when you start interrogating the language, it's typically not people that are challenging identity politics. It's people who are on the other side of the identity politics battle to yeah. those that they consider woke. I, I find, though, that as, even as we're trying to discuss this, you know, it does reveal what a kind of, what a terrible jumble of things we have. So we have sort of people getting annoyed about, you know, well, I, you know, I, don't, think, I, I don't think female James Bond makes any sense, you know, as a mm -hmm. character. But that's not a political point. I just don't, <laughs> nor do I think uh, that this is actually something that is like a big feminist priority, <laughs> as far as I'm aware. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's sort of trivial stuff like that to literally, you know, kind of looking at racial bias in policing, in employment, you know, I mean, really profoundly serious, life-changing stuff mm -hmm. is jumbled up with the trivial stuff. And I think if you talk to, if I talk to any of my friends and I just gave them a random list of woke things, there'd be some things they'd go, absolutely. And other things they'd go, that seems a bit much. And other things they'd go, well, I need to think about that. And that's not because they're not, you know, they're, they're any less progressive. I'm talking about the specific, you know, manifestations, phrases, flashpoints, controversies, you know, incidents, you see them all the time. Now, but, but what can you extrapolate from those? Like, when I see something where I thought, like, you know, um, the Philip Guston paintings or, or Alison Raymond were treated badly, right? Treated badly by people in a flap trying to signal that they were doing the right thing mm -hmm. but not really thinking it through. But does that really change my views, my political views, at all. No, it doesn't. And so that, I think, is the problem, is that woke has become this amazing sort of magnet for every, every iron filing mm -hmm. in the vicinity. Mm -hmm. And so every time somebody progressive slash woke does something unfair or just annoying or embarrassing, that somehow represents the entirety yeah, yeah. of the progressive left, of liberals, you know, centre even. And, and so, of course, you end up with a completely hopeless sort of non-debate. And the easiest book that one can write is one that takes pot shots at the weirder, sillier, nastier examples of behaviour because you can surely find them. If you want to talk, if you want to find somebody that you think has been cancelled, you can find them. Not as many, I think, as some people would claim. You can certainly find examples of being people drink, being treated badly. But why should that? I, I'm not convinced by the synecdoche here. I'm not convinced that these incidents speak to a larger problem, a movement. And this, I think, is, is what's very particular about a lot of anti-woke stuff, where there is a degree to which it is a conspiracy theory. There is... Or is it, there is a conspiracy theory as part of it. Cultural Marxism, ah, right? right. Okay. Which dates back to 1992, blames the Frankfurt School, Germans, for PC. And it has got this kind of red scare quality. And cultural Marxism comes up now. And if you hear Jordan Peterson talk about all things woke, mm -hmm. it is a conspiracy theory. It is somehow, it is, they are all kind of, we're all working together. It's the critical race theory people and the trans lobby and the people who have read too many French people. Mm -hmm. And 
it, it is a kind of sinister ideology. And where my critique of, it's not even a critique, but where I see, um, you know, aspects of woke behavior, you know, which aren't working very well, it's not part of a big cunning plan. Mm -hmm. It is people losing their nerve. It's people not thinking, it's people reacting in a knee-jerk way. It's people fucking up, basically. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is, is a really crucial difference. Is like, do you believe that this is a very broad section, actually, of, of, of society, people with a progressive bent, some of which are going to disagree with each other, people are going to make mistakes and so on, or do you believe that is a deeply rooted hardline ideology which seeks you know hegemonic power i've got to be fair to to most of the people i've read they don't really speak in those terms i mean they they sort of do they, they'd be in the middle of that they'd be they kind of recognize there's a cultural there's a generational shift it, essentially it is a generational shift it's very very based on age and they don't really think that there's a guiding hand around it what they, what they do fixate on, and it's amazing how much this comes up, is really mental health stuff. Um, and the best descriptions you get from this, uh, by far, of course, are from Haidt and Nukinov. And they sort of talk about this, you know, you've got the 20th century, and we get these new developments in child safety. So seatbelts, uh, daycare child-proofing, you know, that kind of stuff. And then eventually this concept of safety just expands. And one of the key ways it expands is by a changing evolution of the concept of trauma. So when you get sort of, you know, when you talk about things like sort of post-traumatic PTSD in the uh, in sort of the 80s, these this is the first time we're really talking about this idea that um, of sort of trauma as, as this really seminal sort of thing that happens in the brain. And yet the criteria for it is objective. It's like, you know, murder, rape, war, genocide, these kind of things, big trauma. And then something shifts and it becomes a subjective assessment. Um, and, you know, so it could be, you know, your mum left you alone when you were a kid for two hours once and, you know, you're really affected by it. Or someone spoke down to you in school and it's just a thing that's what's made you shy and whatever. You know, that's just very, a real need for safety and protection. Okay, so to conclude... Is there any, is there ever a point, is there any reason to ever use or countenance the word woke? I struggle with it. I mean, I think certainly talking about the way other people use it is interesting. You know, my, my angle on it, uh, as I said, is that that woke is essentially, it's a supercharged retread of arguments about political correctness with a couple of new issues woven in, um, obviously with the impact of social media and the internet at large. But it, it's, it's not that different from the political correctness debate. And obviously political correctness, PC, became so devalued that even the people who hated it kind of got bored. Mm. It was like quite weird to almost see somebody complaining about PC. Uh, but that happened over a few years. And I think I suppose what strikes me about Woke was that, it, you know, very, very, very quickly, I was sick of hearing about it. And then as soon as I see somebody using the word, which is always negative, I sort of lose respect for them because I'm like, well, what's your, what is your objection here? Is it, is it about... Um, is it about a particular institution? Is it uh, a free speech question? Is it that you like racism? Like, what is your specific objection? And because woke means so many things and has this sort of implied contempt, I don't know how it can ever be useful because I don't know what people are talking. I literally, I'm not being obtuse here, but when somebody goes, a war on woke, I'm like, well, well what? You know, banning gay marriage would could be a war on woke. Obviously, you don't mean that. Like, what is the bit that bothers you? And then maybe find a word for that bit. Because this one, I think, is useless. I think it's the, it's the first episode we've done where I would just be happy if the word was completely pensioned off and I never heard it again. Yeah, me too. I would love, I would love to never hear it again. And it acts as a sort of excuse for me to not read an article. <laughs> like if it figures anywhere, I'm like, oh, that's great. Okay, so I've relinquished my juicy here and I can just get to go. Because clearly nothing interesting is happening here. I think if you, 
it's this hour's been interesting because I, I hadn't really considered that point you make of the kind of cynicism of the political attack, that this is an attack with decades of history that you just go into and you can reuse it and it taps into a kind of a victory that I think the right often has over the left of like this common sense corner of the pub instinct of, oh, you can't even say this now. And, oh, it's just a nonsense, right? You know, and that's a very powerful attack, a very effective attack. And you can see the cynicism there. But I think even though that's there, there is simultaneously processes that are taking place in people's heads. And some of them are emotional, right? That thing about age, just that thing that we all have of like the young must be wrong because they're young, right? And new ideas come with young. And I think clearly when you look at the way the young are now, they're much more aware of their mental health. They're much more protective of sort of spaces around people to make them feel comfortable. Um, and there will be problems with that. And there are good sides to that. The other part, Though it's more justifiable, it's not just an emotional instinct, it's around specific political ideas. So ideas around, you know, should all white people be interrogating their sense of racial bias, right? And we can carry that in a way of going, well, this, in certain aspects, it's kind of unhelpful, you can overdo it. And in other aspects, it's like a really necessary process. So when you peel apart those political disputes, if you can separate them out, you can have a kind of an interesting discussion there. You know, what are limits to free speech and blah, blah, blah. You can have that. And we will probably do episodes that take those ideas on identity politics, on cultural appropriation. And, and there you can have a to and fro. When it comes to the umbrella term, you are predominantly dealing in that really quite cynical, bludgeoning use that serves to conceal meaning more than it reveals meaning. And I think probably, you know, now that we've read a few books on it, we can safely and happily put that word to bed and never have to engage in it anymore, ever again. It's done now. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> As is this episode of Origin Story, thank you so much for listening. You can send your thoughts, questions, recommendations, comments to us, originstory at podmasters.co.uk. And you can also see what books we've been reading, not all of which I think Ian will recommend, <laughs> on the show notes. Thanks again. See you next time. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production. <laughs>